expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. It's episode 168 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. I'm James Witham alongside... The Merc with one, I'm Nick Battaglia, and you know, last week we covered E3, so James didn't get a chance to review The Mummy, but hey, this week, no E3, which means, James, the floor is yours, tell us about The Mummy and how much it would piss me off if I saw this. Well, here's the deal, the first thing you see in The Mummy is the banner that says, Dark Universe, so I thought about that whole lawsuit potential thing, and I'm going, ooh, that's a ballsy move to put right in the beginning of your movie. All right, so we're doing this, and I will get to how much it would have pissed you off here in a minute, but let me go through the premise of the movie itself. Of course, it follows Tom Cruise's character, Nick Morton, who, you know, this wasn't really clear what his character was in the, in the trailer. Basically, he's a soldier who's based in Iraq, and he has his buddy, Chris Vale, who is played by, of course, Jake Johnson. And basically, they are degenerates, basically. They go AWOL from their unit, wherever they are, in this case, Iraq, and they steal antiquities and sell them on the black market. So already, not the most redeeming of qualities in your main character. That's what they do. Can I ask you this question? Okay, so they do all this illegal shit, and they're part of the military. Any punishment at all for that, or is it just, like, sweep it under the rug? Okay, spoilers from here on out, by the way, just in case anybody still hasn't seen it. Uh, punishment, there was gonna be. You know the whole plane crash scene? Yeah. The guy that was gonna punish them dies in the plane crash. Does anybody else know? Yes, one person knows. Jenny Halsey, who is played by Annabelle Wallace, who, by the way, apparently, this wasn't clear, and this was one of my problems with the movie, it wasn't clear because apparently Tom Cruise sleeps with her, okay? He sleeps with her to steal a map from her to get whatever antiquities he's trying to get in this specific place in what used to be Mesopotamia. So she's the one that kind of busts him in this whole deal with his command, And he's going to go down for this, but in bunker busting this place, they find the giant cavern where the tomb is, where Amonet's tomb is, which they don't know it's Amonet's at the time. So that's how they find it. They basically bunker bust this place because they got caught trying to steal from the, basically the Islamic State in one of their strongholds and they got, took fire, so they called it an airstrike, blah, blah, blah. My problem with one of the, to, to, to fast forward this a little bit so we're not sitting here for 15 minutes. Basically, Tom Cruise does the selfish thing of, well, if nobody's going to pull this thing up, I'm going to shoot it. It's going to come up. So that's how they exhume the tomb because he decides to go, screw it. Let's just do this. Let's not waste time and wait because we're going to die here anyway. Let's just pull it up. So, and then they, the bright idea of them putting it on the plane. One of the problems that you had with Alien Covenant was smart people doing stupid stuff. Yeah. Stupid idea. To put a sarcophagus that you don't know what's inside that was basically drowned in mercury, you know this is an evil entity at this point. So you know. So you put it on a plane, yeah, bad shit's going to happen. Now, I will fast forward quite a bit. One thing I did like about this movie a lot was Sophia Batella's portrayal of Aminette. She was 
great. When she first, you know, became her mummified self, and she's first crawling out of the sarcophagus, creepy as hell. Her backstory was actually really good. Basically, she's supposed to be the heir to the kingdom, but her dad has a late-in-life son, so she's screwed now. It's because, of course, the throne's going to go to the male heir, not the female heir. So she decides, screw this, I'm going to perform a ceremony to bond with the god of death, Set, and become evil. So she kills her dad, kills the kid, kills the woman that she has the kid with. And then she's going to have, she's going to go with this whole evil thing. But she gets caught, doesn't work out. They mummify her alive. That's what happened back then. So great backstory. So basically, Tom Cruise becomes her new, quote unquote, chosen. Mm -hmm. So that's how that whole thing starts. Now, the thing that bugs me is, is that the whole narrative on Tom Cruise's character was, there's good in there. There's good in there. There's good in there. And they don't actually show any good until kind of toward the end of the movie. <laughs> Russell Crowe's character, who is Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and we do get to see we get do get to see uh, Mr. Hyde come out and play a little bit in this movie. It's almost like a, he's the evil guy that says we're doing this for the greater good, so he wants to kill Tom Cruise automatically. He's basically evil Nick Fury. Yeah, he wants to kill him because he's like, well, this guy probably already killed himself when he released this whole thing, so we're going to kill him. And basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to track down the, the dagger of Set, which is what Aminette was going to use to bring Set back into the mortal world, kill everyone, and rule that way. So there's a jewel and a dagger. we got to find them. Put, she wants to find them, put them together, complete the witch ritual, blah, blah, blah. So we go through a whole movie of that. And Aminette basically sucking the life out of people to, you know, for, it was basically very much like the other mommy movie. You suck the soul out of somebody, you start to form. And you go through the whole movie of that, but she can also make those people rise. And the thing that I hated was that they were basically fucking zombies. And I hate <laughs> zombies. I hate them. <laughs> you can never escape them. You, you no, just can't. you can't. And then, and then you've got uh, Jake Johnson's character in this like recurring comedic like guide type role. Which was he funny? Sure, I like Jake Johnson a lot. He's a funny dude. But it was weird in this sense. It's like sometimes this movie was serious. Sometimes this movie wasn't. What was one of the things that we were worried about? This movie wouldn't know what the hell it wanted to be. That was my biggest problem with it. Was that it wasn't sure. What the hell it wanted to be? Did it want to be more like Brendan Fraser mummy? Or did it want to be more like, you know, the, the mummy from yesteryear? So, in, in what Tom Cruise does at the end where he kind of... Basically, the, the big spoiler of the movie is he stabs himself with the completed dagger. Now, right. this is where my wife and I argued about this movie for quite a bit. She seems to think that he's now set the god of death. But it was Aminette who had to perform the ritual. So she did not stab him. So basically what I think is that Tom Cruise becomes this hybrid god of death, mortal type thing. So where he's not the complete god of death to where he can kind of alternate between one and the other because he stabbed himself, not the other way around. And he does end up killing Aminette at the end of this movie, which pissed me off because she was so good. She was so good, dude. She so, was so good, and they and they kill her off. That well, see, that was one of the big positives I heard about this movie. So before you give your rating on the Mummy, 
what's your feeling of the Dark Universe going forward? Everything now you've seen the Mummy and you, you know, you said they they don't know what direction they want to go in. Where are your thoughts on this whole Dark Universe? Okay, first of all, if they end up bringing her back later on, which is still a possibility, I think that that's good. I think there's still hope because this was not a bad movie. There were there were definitely good things about it. It was not as bad as everybody says it was. It wasn't a complete dumpster fire. Were there things about it that were a complete dumpster fire? Sure. Like, they didn't clarify Tom Cruise's relationship with Annabelle Wallace's character and why he's going the extra mile for basically somebody he had a one-night stand with kind of thing. Um, the, the fact that she was so good, the fact that at some point Tom Cruise could go evil. If there's that in a later movie thing where you flip a switch and he ends up going evil and turns the tables on everything that could redeem this entire thing because i'm waiting for him to make this choice because everybody else treats him like shit in the movie too and as a matter of fact jenny who's the quote-unquote love of his life does nothing but put him down the whole entire movie so if he decided at one point to say you know what Amonette's offer, pretty good. Gonna take it, go evil, kill all of you, and we'll see how where we go from here. If they decide to eventually make him evil, it could make it very, very interesting. But if they still stay in this whole, well, it's gonna be funny at times, but not funny at times, they could be in some problems. But they need to decide what they want their movies to be. If they want them to be more Brendan Fraser-esque, that's fine. But you need to make sure you're consistent with that throughout. The other problem was, is what... Dr. Jekyll, in his lab, had a skeleton of what was clearly a vampire. A skeleton of what clearly looked like Frankenstein's head. The creature from the Black Lagoon's fucking arm and a jaw. So so basically, it was like, uh, was it Amazing Spider-Man 2, where you see the guy in the hat walking by yeah. the bullet wings and the Doc Ock arms. So it's kind of foreshadowing, basically. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, are they all dead? Because we've got movies to make here. Are all the rest of them going to be prequels? I don't know what's going on here, so that was another problem. But overall, not a complete dumpster fire, but not the stellar opening to a dark universe that we would have wanted either. So I'm going to go ahead and give this six four-way needles that you need to inject to not become Mr. Hyde out of ten. And that's going to do it for James's review of The Mummy. But coming up next is what we're reading. We have two new books this week. Stay tuned and find out what they are on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Peter Milligan. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's that time we pull out our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week in James. You know, I'm on this Wonder Woman train, basically. You know, I saw the movie a bunch of times. The comic series, the regular run is amazing. But, of course, it was announced a while back that, hey, we're doing these crossovers with Looney Tunes characters. And, of course, last week I reviewed on my written review on the website, downnerdypodcast.com. Martian Manhunter, Marvin the Martian, how much I love that. And so I said, you know what? I love Tasmanian Devil. I think, you know, my my two favorite characters in Looney Tunes are Marvin the Martian, number one, and Taz is number two. Mm. And so putting her with Taz, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a good book. And it's written by Tony Bedford. The pencil is done by Barry Kitson. John Floyd did the inks and Laverne. Kinzierski did the colors, and David Sharp did the letters on this. And this basically, the setting of this is, it's in Themyscira, and it takes place kind of like in the present and a little bit in the past. And basically, Diana is going through these trials in this labyrinth, basically. And her relationship with Taz, I don't want to spoil it, because it's actually pretty cool what they do with it. Her relationship with Taz, I'll say, is created 
in these trials. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and the role that they give Taz is very interesting as well. And, of course, the mascara gets invaded by uh, some, of course, trolls and just, you know, witches and just evil people. And so it's kind of up to Diana and Taz to save Themyscira. And I like this book. I like the the first story. There's a second story that's attached at the end, which is, you know, if you're a Looney Tunes fan, you're saying, well, you know, these redesigns of these famous characters are, are fine, but I want the classic looks. There is a, a classic look Taz story at the end of this book. I wasn't a fan of it because it kind of made Taz out to be as very... Uh, to use a term, very frat boyish, mm. and it was really to to turn me off in a sense the way that they wrote Taz in the second one, which is kind of a shame because Bedford wrote the second story as well. And with this first story, though, all you see all these trials, you see these challenges, and just what's at stake. And I love the dynamic they built between Taz and Diana. It was kind of actually a dynamic between. Diana and Sheeta that we've seen in the Kurt Rucka Wonder Woman run, but oh, it's to that extent, but not fully to that extent of their, their relationship. But that's what the kind of vibes they got from it. And I love what they did with this. They made Taz work. He didn't seem out of place. It wasn't like, well, we didn't know where else to throw him with whoever DC character. Let's just put him in Wonder Woman. They made the mythology of Wonder Woman work for Taz and with Taz, which I love. They, they made him part of that Themyscirian mythology, which I love. And that's what makes this book work. And for me, this is a buy. This is a pull for me. This is a buy. The art is gorgeous. Uh, the pencils are great. The inks are wonderful. The colors are just very, uh, they're vibrant colors, but they're not too shiny. They're very kind of history book-ish, I'll say, in terms of the colors and just the, the way the art is stylized. Overall, man, this is just a really, really great book. I love it. Uh, again, I wasn't a fan of the second story, but you know what? You can read the first story and just love it and fall in love with uh, the writing and, and everything that comes with it, man. I really did love this this book. I can't wait to see, you know, get my hands on just other Looney Tunes books that are crossover with DC because they've been killing it so far, man. They're, they're 2 and 0, really 3 and 0 because I read the Bugs Bunny one also as well, and that was great. So this, this marriage between. Looney Tunes and DC is a home run by my standpoint. Yeah, they did the same thing with the Lobo Roadrunner book where yep. they had the main that story was great in the front too. and then they had the, the end story, which actually ended up being pretty funny because it's almost like a, uh, you know, you break kayfabe a little bit and you kind of go, okay, well, this is what's really going on and this is why we're doing this story in the first place. Right. Kind of thing. So, I th- and, you know, it's Lobo being Lobo and breaking the fourth wall kind of thing. So I, I think that they've done a great job on this and these are just everything I think we expected, and we've still got Elmer Fudd Batman to go. So, I mean, we got a lot more to look forward to with this. And, of course, that's that's written by our boy Tom King, so yep. I really can't wait to see. And just one quick thing I want to say about this story, too, is it's very much a one woman story, but if you're also a Dynamite reader, reader of Dynamite comics, it also has a bits of Pathfinder feel to it as well. Oh, nice. So what did you read this week, man? I actually decided to do a little something from our friends at Top Cow, of course, the division of Image Comics. It actually started out as a Kickstarter, and now it's finally out. It's called September Morning, which was actually created by Mark Silvestri and Emily Lazar. It's also written by Emily Lazar and Mariah McCourt. Art is done by Sumaya Kestian. Colors are done by Betsy Gonia and Katrina Devich. And letters are done by Troy Pitieri. Now... 
there's an it's this book is just so interesting from start to finish and in that fate decides what happens in the world that much i i can tell you there's not a whole lot that more i can tell you without spoiling it but it's fate that decides what happens in everyday life but fate is is an actual thing it's not a you know this fictional thing that exists in 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 space it's actually a being of some kind so and fate deploys reapers to deal with souls and let's just say, and maybe this is a little bit of a minor spoiler, but, but we really can't go forward to this review without telling you this, is that one of the Reapers goes rogue and decides to create a hybrid from basically a woman that's basically no one. He takes her soul, makes her a hybrid, and thus September morning is born. So now September morning is a half Reaper, half human, which is how the story goes forward. Now, we also have... Another character in this book who we who we meet up with, which we find out is actually the narrator, and something very, very tragic has happened in her life, and that's kind of taken her on a wayward path. I should also point out that she's blind, by the way, but she mm. can see one very specific thing is all she can see. That's all I'll tell you because it's actually a pretty, pretty cool reveal. And she's one of those, it's like a typical, typical teenagers had a rough life kind of thing. She's had a tough go of it, but here's her, she, this is her path now kind of thing. So basically this deals a lot with her, the Reapers and September morning, because of course, when you've got a rogue Reaper that created someone, the rest of the Reapers and fate, not going to be so happy with that because she's basically screwing with their balance of things. And that's really where this story kind of picks up and how it goes. And, and basically you get more of a close relationship between the two female characters in this book, which is really, really interesting how they create their dynamic. And I don't want to give away too much of this book. And it's actually an oversized issue to where you're getting, it's almost like the first volume where you get two full-sized issues in one issue, which they kind of had to do because a lot of the first part of it is you're laying the groundwork for, okay, here's how our principal players are. Here's where we're going with the story, and here's how we bring everyone together. So that's your first issue, and then the second issue, you start to get into the meat of the story, and you find out what's really going on here. And I will say this. I get a very Buffy vibe in, in this. It's like, an, it's like an overly like ghostly, supernatural, and almost a uh, cult-religious Buffy type of a story because it's a little snarky at times. There's definitely a couple times where I laughed, and it's very... Uh, it's sarcastic because, of course, you're dealing with teenage a teenager here in one sense. But it's like it, it took Buffy and cranked up the mystical side a whole bunch because there's also two worlds that we're dealing with here as well. So it's almost like you took the foundation of what Buffy was, you cranked the ghostliness up to 11, and you created a nice, funny dynamic in something that's also very, very serious. So... I mean, the fact that this started out as a Kickstarter, which, you know, we've Top Cow's got a whole lot of experience with books that started as Kickstarters, and then they make their way into print. This is one of those where, when I even read the description of it, I was like, this is interesting, and it's why I wanted to review it on the show in the first place. This is one of those stories where it has appeal to so many different audiences, I think, and so many different age groups that you could pick this up 
and enjoy it as a young adult. You can pick the story up as an, and enjoy it as an adult. The male, female, it doesn't really matter because it has a little something for everybody and it doesn't push it over the top. What they do with the story and what how September Morning deals with her Reaper half I think is really, really interesting. And a couple things that she does with it throughout the book make you go, huh, so that's either going to be something really interesting or something that's going to be a real problem down the line. The art, gorgeous, gorgeous in this book. I mean, it's definitely a different style and something that we've seen out of image books in the past as well. Hard to say what to really connect it with just because of the story itself. I'm not sure where I could go and say, oh, well, it looks like this book. But it's, it's absolutely gorgeous, especially anytime September morning herself is in a panel. It's just, it's so amazing. So just bravo to everybody involved in this. And I can't read, wait to read more. I don't know how long we're going to have to wait because they haven't exactly said, okay, is this a limited series? Is this ongoing? So I'll talk to the folks at Top Cow about that. But this is one of those books that might sneak under the radar at your comic shop or, or even digitally. But I'd put this in your poll box, man. It's interesting. I'm definitely going to keep reading this. It's a poll for me. Buy this book because I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what they're going to do with it next. That's awesome, man. I'm glad to hear that a project like this that was a Kickstarter is so good. And again, hey, if you want more of these comics, especially something like what James reviewed this week, you got to go to your local shops. You got to go on Twitter, go on Facebook, whatever, hit up these publishers and say, hey, I read this. I want more because then they'll make more. That's how these things continue to happen. It's how we get so many great comics in these continuations. Yeah, tell your shop that you want these books. That's part right. of the point that you're. I think you're making is that you know sometimes your shop might not stock this book, and you're going to miss out on a really good book, especially in this case with September Morning. I would even talk about when when Eclipse came out from our boy Zach Kaplan. When that first came out, maybe your local shop didn't have it and, and should have, and you might have missed out on it. Go back. Matter of fact, the second trade's getting ready to come out, I think, in August, so you can catch up with the first trade. Second trade, you can get in August, and of course, issue eight's just dropping this week as well. Don't miss out on these books because there's good stories being told, even coming out of Kickstarters. And that's going to do it for what we're reading this week. But coming up next, we're going to return back to Charm City. That's right, Powerless is back, at least for one more episode. Also, we're going to reflect a little bit on Adam West and the life that he lived. Hey, this is Patrick Schumacher. And Justin Halpern. We are the showrunners of NBC's Powerless, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This week, we're getting to do something we didn't actually think we were going to be able to do. This week in Geek Tamer, we're going to review the season finale of Powerless, although albeit under kind of tragic circumstances. Yeah, and of course, that tragic circumstance being the passing of a lot of people's first Batman, that being Adam West. And of course, uh, last week they had the bat symbol that Adam West wore on his chest, on his bat suit. It was on the... Uh, one of the buildings in Los Angeles, and it was really awesome. A lot of people showed up. But, yeah, I mean, he was part of the Powerless finale. So DC, of course, did the right thing. And plus, I mean, for weeks, for a while, since Powerless sadly got canceled, a lot of people said, you know, release the final episodes. You know, there was only like a few episodes left. Show us. And DC says, okay, well, we'll give you the finale. And they did. And I got to say, man, watching the finale – there were a lot of hints and just lines of dialogue where the cast and even, you know, everybody on the show were uncertain of the future because it was just like, no matter what happens, you know, we'll always have each other. And they didn't, you know, it was that uncertainty. So 
reality was kind of like they were kind of breaking the fourth wall. And it, for me, it made this, the finale even more sad. You want to talk about breaking the fourth wall? How about Adam West? Right. And being <laughs> the na- being the narrator role in the old Batman series that they used to have. Tune in next week to find out what's going to happen to our Cape Crusaders. When he's like, will our plucky band of of uh, employees make it one more time kind of thing? I just thought right. that the way that uh, Adam West was able to kind of turn the tables there was pretty neat. And, of course, Adam West plays one of the higher ups of uh wayne enterprises basically and chairman he's chairman west and so i love that whole narration bit but i also like when he's in van's office Mm -hmm. and he's talking about again kind of breaking that fourth wall of he's like i know it's you know not the great he's paraphrasing here but he's basically like i know it's not the greatest of cameos but it's like you know or or the short most long-lived of cameos but (laughs) you know so i mean i love the writing in this finale because again they hit on the emotional aspects of we don't know what's going to happen of course we now know that it's gone but you know, we, I'm glad we kind of got to see. You know, what it felt like even though they, the show's been off for like what appears to be a month or something like that, a few weeks. It kind of felt like a reunion. It kind of did. It kind of did. And I like that because again, I liked the, the writing in it and everything. It was it was great. And one of my favorite parts of this was you know they explored LexCorp and and Lex is now president. So you got President Luthor and. And I love what they did with Luthor as president, and I love what they did with LexCorp. And it was pretty cool, you know, to see them go for that orientation, like, oh, we've been sold, now we got to go work for LexCorp, and everything that happens there. So, overall, this finale of Powerless, I, I loved it. It makes me just sad that the show got canceled, because I'm just like, man, I would love to see where they could have gone with this, especially because a lot of the gags in this you know, especially visual, because it's like, okay, the story in this one revolves around Vanessa Hudgens' character getting her, her condo. She's like, I finally saved up and got a condo. And then there's an attack. And if you notice, the only condo that got attacked yep. was hers. Yep. <laughs> Everything else in the building she lived in was fine. Her condo was just blown to hell. Man, I love what they did with LexCorp. I really, really do. It it gave you that whole, this is the greatest company in the it world It gave vibe. you that. Dude, I got a very Google vibe from that's, it, man. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. And they, they handed you nachos and you were walking in, which turns out were made from people. Uh, <laughs> but it, it was just so great. And then even when he catches them, when they find the wormhole that actually uh, let the let the um, beings that destroyed Emily's apartment out, he's like, oh, man, now we got to kill you guys. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's so freaking funny. Just the way that they portrayed that. And then uh, the fact that they were trying to give Van superpowers and it didn't yeah. work. And then Jackie ends up getting superpowers. That was getting, so great, man. Well, that's the thing is that Jackie ends up getting the, the super speed that they were trying to give Van. And it, that was hilarious, man. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> I might not use my powers in the very Jackie way she uses them. And I love that. And I love because, you know, on Twitter, you see Alan Tudyk's, uh, profile picture on his twitter his avatar is him bald and you're like yep oh man we never got to see him 
it, it, why and the reasoning why he's bald. And it's like, well, he shaved his head because he's going to be working at Legs Corp. So he's like, and he literally says, he's like, I have asses, new asses I have to kiss. I have <laughs> new brown I have to stick my nose in, you know? Like, it's, it, it's that's why I love, I got to say, a lot of the shows I've watched, whether it's comic book based or whatever, Van Wayne has been one of my favorites because he's not, you know, whereas a lot of people like will kind of be that brown noser of a company or of a character and that nobody will really call them out on it or, or they or themselves won't call them out on it even though they know what they're doing. He's not afraid. He's like, yeah, I kiss ass and I brown nose. So fucking what? Oh, Alan Tudyk. I think I'll miss you the most. <laughs> he was just so entertaining in this role. <laughs> like when he's depressed that he doesn't get the spot on the board and he's laying on the couch and he like eats the Cheeto that was under his armpit or something like yeah. that. And he plays... He plays spoiled rich guy so good. Oh, he does. It was so really unbelievable, does. and I'm going to miss the potential for any more Van Wayne tracks with him playing playing music and stuff like that. That was hilarious from earlier on in the season. I'm, I'm just going to miss this show. Was it the greatest show on television? No. Was it the most hilarious thing I've ever seen? No, but it was so, there was something just so charming and funny about it. And the cast just, it was a great, for as, as far as sitcoms go, a lot of great chemistry with this cast. And I think that that's one of the things that, that got missed when the show actually got canceled. And I know they probably wouldn't be able to keep any everybody on board, but I'm hoping that once, you know, the whole DC streaming channel, DC All Access streaming channel comes up, hopefully they'll at least then release the episodes of Powerless or maybe even bring in a... a uh, a kind of a toned-down version of it to bring it back as well. Well, here, and here's my thing with Powerless. One of my favorite things about Powerless, as you said, was it the best show? No, it, it had some, some you know, dry parts in its comedy. But I loved it because it was different. It was comedic. It had a lot of colors. You know, we live in this world where everything's gray now in these superhero shows. And the only color, you know, that's in the shows are part of the suits. And even those are dark tones. So you're like... Well, there's nothing bright, there's nothing shiny, there's nothing cheerful. Like, when I sat down and watched Powerless again, this finale, I'm like, this is cheerful. Like, this makes me happy. I'm happy I'm watching this. This is, like, I can, in a sense, turn my brain off, in a sense, mm -hmm. even though it's a comic book show, you know? And you can't really do that a lot in these things, because everything's connected now, and everything is it matters. But now you look at a show like Powerless, where every episode kind of, even though it kind of built off of a little bit of what happened in the prior ones. It was, it felt like every episode was its own unique 20, 30 minutes. And I liked that. And that's why I miss about that show. And I miss about, you know, one thing I miss about the show a lot. And again, seeing Vanessa Hudgens and Danny Pudi and, and, and Ron Funches was great. You know, and Alan Tudyk and like, you know, the list goes on and on for the cast. It's just one of those things where that you felt you again, going on what you said, you felt that chemistry. It was really there. And I'm going to miss that. And it's like, I know I say I'm going to miss that and it's it's gone. But as long as Hulu has it, hey, you know, I can always go back and revisit it. Mm -hmm. I do hope that if there are a couple more episodes left that weren't, you know, revealed. I believe there was, what, like two, three more episodes, not counting the finale. Up, I think it's up to four. They haven't really said specifically. Uh, so why ask the guys. Yeah, I want to ask uh, – Patrick uh, after this recording and, uh, and see what's going on but I think that when I look at this man I'm like you know you gave us the finale just give us the other episodes just just give us that one season like just give mm -hmm. us that full season if I can have a full season I'll be fine 
you know, and, and hopefully... That. Yeah, not only that, but if you want to... I mean, I understand why they didn't do it for this particular episode, because it was for Adam West, and I think that was the right position. But if you wanted to put ads in it to, to kind of spice things up a bit and give you a reason to release these final however many episodes, you want to put ads in it, fine, I'll watch it anyway. Go you're ahead, put about, ads in there. You're talking about on YouTube, of course, correct? Yeah, on YouTube or, or wherever they well, want to release Well, no, it. well, here's the thing is if they wanted to do it on Hulu, like my Hulu subscription, I have no ads. So it wouldn't even with Powerless when it was on, it wouldn't show ads. So if they want to do like DC Entertainment, it's like, but it's like, okay, we'll release them. But if you want to put ads on them, I'll just put it on YouTube and just enable ads. Or if you just want to do what you did with the finale, just not have ads at all, just do that. I think one way or the other, I think it doesn't really matter to them. I think it's just a matter of, for me at least, as a someone who loved the show, wish it got longer life. I, w- I, just, I just want these episodes one way or another. I don't give a shit. Yeah, I really don't care. And they're already in the can. You know, what? it doesn't yeah. really hurt. To, they're probably, I don't know if they've been fully produced or not, but you don't have to edit them. Just throw them up there. Let them be what they are and, and let fans enjoy it. And hopefully that actually gets a chance to happen. But to honor Adam West like this and the way that uh, DC and everybody involved in it. I mean, you got to give, give a shout out to NBC too, because NBC, of course, was the yeah. original... Uh, network that aired this they could have said you know what no we really don't want you to air this through youtube because you know this is part of our deal as well so hats off to nbc as well for for allowing this to happen too yeah man and, you know and, and here's one quick thing i want to say too about the finale overall and just what they should do with it. again just give us the, just give us that sense of closure that's all i really want with this show and you know you mentioned the whole we don't you know, maybe it was, wasn't edited yet or whatever i think if they put the finale together then they obviously they've had to have the other episodes already mm-hmm. cut and ready and primed to go on air. Uh, real quick, was Adam West, because I know for me Michael Keaton was my first Batman because I was born in the late 80s. So was Adam West your first Batman, or who was that first Batman you really got into in terms of live action? Adam West was my first Batman, not only just in the live action, but remember he also did the voiceovers for a lot of the animated stuff at the time when I was younger as well. So my first exposure to Batman, other than, of course, comics and stuff like that, was Adam West. So to me, when somebody says Batman, the first person that pops into my head is Adam West. And yeah, it was campy and you know, and a, and a little corny at times, That the, the show that he was on, but you know what? It's just such a fun and different take on Batman, and I've always, always, even to this day, seen that show for what it was and loved it. And I still, and, and even all the villains on there that I, I, I enjoyed so, so much when that was part of it. So, I mean, is Kevin Conroy probably the ultimate Batman? Yes, but my Batman in my heart and soul will always be Adam West. So, at SDCC. Do you think they're going to have like an exhibit for Adam West there this year? I really hope so, or, or maybe a panel or something like that celebrating the life of Adam West. I really hope that uh, they get a chance to do something like that, or at least play, pay homage to him in some way, shape, or form. Of course, you know, Warner Brothers always has their booth, so hopefully they, they might, at least on one of the days, have a little section uh, for Adam West, or even DC, just give him the, uh, the attention that he really deserves. And, of course, Adam West, his legacy will live on forever, not just because of the old Batman shows, even this episode of Pilots, but also he did another animated film, which I believe hasn't been released yet, but he finished yes, his recording yes. uh, in time before he passed away for that as well. So we have that to look forward to as well. But that's going to do it for our discussion of the Powerless finale and, of course, our small tribute to Adam West. But coming up next, we have a bunch of nerd news to get to, including a bunch of Star Wars stuff. Stay tuned. 
This is artist Nico Walter, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, folks, it's time to decide who the hell is going to be the driver of the Millennium Falcon because it's time for what, James? News! And, of course, the first story, it's the biggest story of the week. We all know that Star Wars makes billions of dollars at the box office. We know that it's literally one of, if not the most popular thing in cinema and, and just nerddom and geekdom and everything like that. But also, it has some spinoffs, and Rogue One was one of them, and now Han Solo is another spinoff film that's in production right now. But of course, as always, it, it, whenever you have certain directors direct something, and they want to go one way, and the writers want to go the other way, you're going to have a creative differences clash, and one side's going to move, and in this case, it was Lord and Miller, the directors from the Han Solo Spinoff film, and they're no longer working on it. Yeah, the internet was freaking the hell out when they find out that Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, according to Variety, will no longer be directing the Han Solo spinoff movie, and there's been a lot of reports, a lot of statements that have come out, and it looks like they even they said in their statement that they hate the term creative differences, but that's exactly uh, what this was. So this is actually like a legit creative differences type of thing. But apparently the, the, the behind-the-scenes talk is that they had a lot of clashes with uh, Lucasfilm's president, Kathleen Kennedy. Apparently she just didn't like them at all, didn't like anything that they were doing, which to me is like, okay, oh, well, how the hell did they get hired in the first place? But, well, I mean, it ended up working out for them who they ended up getting to replace them, so... Well, they got Ron Howard, but real quick on what you said about the whole them kind of not getting along with Kennedy. Well, from what I read with the, from the Hollywood Reporter, they also had mentioned in the opening of this segment, they clashed with the style and vision of Lawrence Kasdan. Of course, he's a screenwriter that wrote The Empire Strikes Back. He also did Raiders of the Lost Ark. And also with his son, John Kasdan, they wrote the script for this Han Solo film. And basically one of the quotes in the story that I read from Hollywood Reporter was was basically, Han is not comedic, he is selfish, and he's a smartass, basically. Yeah, exactly. And so, so basically the gist that I got from the stories that I read was that they wanted to make, and I'm talking about Phil Lord and Chris Miller, they wanted to make Han Solo more of a comedic guy and stuff like that. And they're like, no, he's not that at all. He's a selfish, arrogant asshole. Like, he's not comedic right. at all. You know, it's not slapstick. And that's kind of like, well, my thing is, is at first I was, I was on the side of Lord Miller because I'm like, okay, they want to do something different. We all know that when it comes to Disney in particular, they like to do very safe work. They like to kind of do very cookie-cutter stuff. And... They wanted to do something different in terms of Lord and Miller, and this was no. It's like, oh, man, I really want to see what they would have done. It would have been something different. But now that I think about it, I'm like, yeah, if, if they made a Han Solo movie where he wasn't the Solo we knew from you know the original films and even Episode 7, it would have been – you've had a lot of pissed off fans. So I think getting Ron Howard in, of course, as of today, it's Thursday recording this. He has been hired to replace Lord and Miller as director. He's also going to be looking before he decides – what to do with the film, he's going to look at a rough edit before deciding what to do as well. And, you know, that's the thing, man. What do you think about Ron Howard directing this or coming in? I like it. I think that he's going to add a little bit of heart to it, and I think that'll be good. I do think that he will be true to the character's selfish nature because, remember, Han doesn't even have any real redeeming moments 
until the end of A New Hope, because that's when he decides to come back and save Luke's ass, and that's how the Death Star blows up, and, you know, we're all kind of one big happy family after that, and then we go into Empire. So there's a basis for that, though, and you've got to lay that groundwork in any prequel movie that involves Han Solo, so I think that Ron Howard's not going to be afraid to explore that, and is, will Han have his funny moments? Absolutely, because smartass can absolutely be funny at plenty of times, so it's not like it's not going to be funny at all, but I think that they also have to explore that relationship between he and he and Lando as well, and I think Lando also plays a part in this, and that Lando's kind of a slime ball too, so we have to make sure that we get that in there as well, because it's not just Han that ha- that this movie has to be right about, even though his name is on it. So I think that Ron Howard will absolutely get that right. The only thing I'm worried about is is that whether it was the right way to go or not, it's it's later in the game than you would usually see something like this happen. Is it too late? Absolutely not. But at the same time, it still has to raise some sort of concerns, especially since you know Disney's not going to want to push that date. Well, you also have to remember this isn't the first big film to lose. Its director was midway through production. I mean, Wizard of Oz went through multiple directors. Gone with the Wind went through a director or two. And so, I mean, it's it's normal. Again, I know they were filming. They started filming since earlier this year. So they were a few months into filming. But there's still enough time to, I think, where they really weren't too much into the thick of it to where they're like, okay, now what do we do? I think if this was more further along, if they were, like, really, like, in the fall, in terms of filming, and even even midway through summer, and this happened, I'd be I would have been more worried than you know now. I mean, Ryan Howard's an amazing director. I'm happy that he's taking over. And again, as you mentioned, he's going to more like add more horror. I think he's going to ground it some more as well. I'm just wondering, you know, when you saw C3PO and R2 have cameos in Rogue One, do you think that he's going to have R2 kind of beep the Andy Griffith song? I do not think we will see R2-D2 in this movie at all, but that would be pretty interesting. I I think that uh, that's got to be on YouTube somewhere at this point. I've got to imagine, but I don't know. I mean, I guess the the level of worry is based on how far they got and how much needs to be changed because, you know, there's a big difference between sitting at a stoplight and taking a left turn with your vehicle and just whipping around and taking a Yui and going back to the direction. So it'll be very interesting to see how much usable material is in there. And yeah, I mean, the, the, and this is the other thing. We're in, we're in 2017, and these things are bigger, and, and there's a lot more effects and all that stuff than there's ever been in movies before. And I don't know how effects-heavy this movie's going to be, but if a lot needs to be changed, I would I really hope that they try not to rush it just to be able to get it to that date. If you have to move the date, just move it. So don't try and rush anything because you got a guy like Ron Howard. You don't want to waste that. Take advantage of it and let him do what he wants to do with this. Now, if you're wondering, well, what's going to happen to Phil Lord Chris Miller now, now that they're off the project? Well, this is according to how reporter, they might return to DC's the flash and they were hired in 2015 to write the film, but they turned down directing it due to other commitments. And of course, that movie itself, The Flash, you want to speak about and talk about directors walking off. Holy hell, they've gone through like three or four creative teams on this. Yeah, it's it's they've, they've, they're kind of passing Ant-Man at this point. So they yeah. need to find <laughs> some sort of a direction for this movie at some point. And I've seen people say, well, you know, should DC just start, not do a Flash movie altogether? I'm like, no, I think that you, you've no, got to do a Flash movie. Well, you've already established that the Flash is in this universe. I mean, he's already been in a couple of films already, albeit 
you know, outside of Justice League, there have been cameos before Justice League comes out this, this summer. So I think that you have to do a Flash movie. I mean, he's part of the Justice League. You already showed him off a couple of few times, you know. And now here's the thing. I don't think they're going to make the release date that they plan of March 26th of nope. next year. Nope. But we'll have to see what happens. My hope is just get a director in there, have them write a script. If it's, if it's Lord Miller, awesome. I think that they can, you know, because the Flash is going to be very lighthearted, I think, in terms of what they want to do. We see the, the ways and the writing that have been going lately with DC in their movies. So is it going to be 21 Jump Street-esque? I don't think so. I think... Miller and Lord can handle those heavy moments which need to be in the Flash film. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's going to be really interesting to see where they go from there. Speaking of where studios go, Fox, 20th Century Fox. So a while back, we reviewed the Fantastic Four reboot, and we fucking hated it. And now Fox says, you know what, wait. Wait, I know we're I know we're zero and two on these things. Zero and three, if you want to count, you know, the, the first and second films. Uh, oh, we're counting four it. films. We're okay, so pretty much Fox is saying we know we're zero for three right now. We know, but hey, this might be a four-game series. We can try to win one game here and not get swept. And so they're trying it again, according, of course, to some sources at Bleeding Cool and just other various outlets. 20th Century Fox is developing another Fantastic Four feature, but it's not going to surround the Fantastic Four. Instead, it's looking to follow Franklin and Val- uh, Valeria, who are the two children of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman. Yeah, and it also says that the Human Torch and the Thing would also appear in the movie. And they're going to go younger and do more kid-friendly. And I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know what? Why not? You haven't been able to get it right. Any of the times that we met, <laughs> you're not doing it. The, the Marvel MCU, I don't care what anybody says, wants zero part of the Fantastic Four. They don't even fit in the whole grand scheme of things. Probably Plus, you already have 60 Avengers. You don't need any more. So, why not do this in the style of the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles-esque type movies, make it for a younger generation, and try to find something anything to redeem this franchise at this point i think the reason why they're doing this if it does come to light that they are developing this kid-friendly fantastic four following these two characters these younger characters i think it's just like listen we've done two films that were origin based we cannot do a third people will already people already hate what we did with the fantastic four film and i'm not gonna lie man i don't want to see another fantastic four film i've said it a bunch of times put him on television They work on television. You can make it work on television with the tone and everything. Because here's my thing. Did you look and see who is currently writing this Fantastic Four reboot? Seth Graham Smith. Of course, going back to The Flash, he's supposed to direct The Flash. And then he left. And why am I bringing up his name in this? Well, he also wrote part of the most recent Fantastic Four reboot. Which was fucking terrible. I know yeah. Josh Trank. I know Josh Trank had a lot more to do with this, but when you have anybody's name that was attached to that shitty of a movie that that was, alerts go off. People are running around panicking. I know in my head I'm kind of like, "What are you doing?" It's it's like one of those things where it's like, "Never again." It's just just never again. You never. Well, 
You know, it, it, you just don't learn. They just don't learn at this point. Here's the deal. We're not going to stop this from happening. This is happening whether we like it or not. They're oh, gonna, I know. They're going to do this to try and make money off of it. But here's the deal. Yeah, you can't have anybody that was attached to that project attached to this because, first of all, there's no way they'd be able to do it right. They've already shown us that by what they tried to do with that dumpster fire of a last movie. But I'm going to say this, and this might make some people angry. In the comics, Reed Richards works as a character. On any screen, Reed Richards is one of the most bland, uninteresting characters in all of comic books. He is terrible, okay? On a screen, in the comics, in the various ways that they work him in, he absolutely works. But Reed Richards is just a bland character, and he's basically your lead in the Fantastic Four. He's always been billed as the lead, and any focus that goes on him, it's just not going to work. So at least if you're going to do it, you take him out of the equation. I hate that you lose the the Invisible Woman, but it's not like Kate Mara got her right in that movie either, so they should really probably try and stay away from that. And, you know, Human Torch and, and the thing, at least they have a little bit more personality, so... If you're going to do it anyway, and you're not going to do it on TV, which you're right, they should absolutely be doing this on TV, you might as well do it this way, because if you take the focus off somebody like Reed Richards on screen, you might, might, might be able to get something. Well, here's an idea I have, and if anybody at a television station or a studio, I should say, is listening to this podcast, which I know a lot of them actually do, I'm not bullshitting about that, but here's the thing. Here's an idea I have. What if you did... I always say I want to do TV. What if you did kind of like a buddy cop show, not a procedural, but just kind of that kind of buddy cop-ish feel with Thing and Human Torch, and maybe they have to like find and, and maybe rescue the other people from the Fantastic Four. That would be interesting, but I think that if Marvel could pry Human Torch away from the Fantastic Four and bring him to the MCU, they would. But they're not going to do that because, well, well, think about this too. When apparently we might be getting team up movies as we move forward here, as we right. see more Avengers come into more of these solo movies. So you take somebody like Human Torch and put him in someone else's movie as the in a buddy cop-esque kind of way in a sort of thing, or even in a certain storyline, that could work. But them together, I think it's an all-or-nothing deal. That's why I don't think they'll ever come to the MCU. So I think your idea would actually be a lot better because, again, you're taking Reed Richards out of the equation. Yeah, if you want to put Sue Storm in there too, feel, you know, feel free. You know, so it's like, oh, we got to get Reed back or something happens or whatever. Like, if you want to do like the first, or just do this. Have a Fantastic Four season, don't make it an origin thing. But if you want to have like a Fantastic Four thing, again, make it maybe more like a buddy cop thing where the first season is, you know, the, involves the thing and Human Torch. And then like season two, they save Sue and Reed and the whole team's back together. So then the second season is the Fantastic Four. At, the, at this point, I'm almost ready to say, just do whatever the hell you want. Make it, make it completely <laughs> like, and utterly different. We're like, we're kind of like that dad now that's just like sitting around, it's like. You know, the kid's just like, Dad, can I go do this? Yeah, do whatever. Just don't fucking bother me. The game's on. Like, I don't, like fucking do whatever, you know? <laughs> it's, I'm going to tell you right now from experience, once your kid's been crying for long enough, I don't care how good of a parent you are, at some point you're going to go, you know what? Just do it. Go ahead. <laughs> just, just cry it out. Just, just go ahead. Just whatever it is that you wanted that I took away from you, here. Just take it. Use it. My head hurts. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> God, man. Just... 
Ugh, horrible parenting. <laughs> right, but I mean, hey, <laughs> if they're happy, then sometimes it works. I'm not saying all the time, but sometimes you're gonna, you just have to cave. And moving on to our final story, we're moving away from movies and going on to television, more specifically HBO. And they guess what? We wanted a Watchmen show. A lot of people were talking about a Watchmen show, and we're getting one. And HBO is doing it. Yeah, and you want to talk about something that works for TV, and we've said that in the past, too. Talk about also the perfect fit in HBO. And also, it looks like we're going to have Damon Lindelof attached to this. Of course, you know, he just did The Leftovers for HBO, and he did Lost as well. You might remember him from that. So I think that's a good fit, and it just seems like this all works. And finally, HBO is getting a comic book property. It's not going to have anything to do with the Zack Snyder movies whatsoever, so that'll make fans really happy. And when Variety put the story out, man, what was your first reaction to it? When Variety put the story out, my first thought was, don't do the current Watchmen, do the classic mid-1900s Watchmen, you know, with the original Silk Spectre and, you know, when and stuff like that. That's what I want. That's what I would love to see because, again, kind of going back to another show we liked, Agent Carter, I love that when shows, especially comic book shows, are in that era. Like, if we were to ever get a Green Hornet show, I would love it set in the 1950s, you know, or 1940s. And I would just love it. So set it with the original Watchmen team from, like, right. you know, the – I can't remember what year the original Watchmen team was around in the comic or in the book. But I want to say it was, like, the 1950s, 1960s. So, like, keep it around that era – and I think that would be perfect. And if you want to bleed it into the current day watching with, you know, Ozymandias and stuff like that, feel free. Yeah, and I mean, think about this. HBO does have experience with going back and doing uh, period pieces very well with stuff like Boardwalk Empire and stuff like that. Westworld. Westworld. You can go back and do that and, and set it in that time period, and it would be absolutely perfect. And I agree. I think that's exactly what they need to do. I mean... You were talking about the, the, I think, the 1940s, 1960s era uh, Watchmen. I think that's the time period that you were kind of going for. Yeah. Modern day, to me, I don't think you can put this group in the modern day. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, man. And I mean, I think that when I look at this show, and I look at what they want to do with it again. We don't know what they're going to do with it. We just know that, hey, a Watchmen show is coming to HBO. It's not going to be tied to the movie or anything like that which is fine so it's a nice clean slate but again if you want to do something original if you want to do something different do that or again hey maybe it's gonna be based on dr manhattan we don't know again we'll find out more as the weeks go by and the months go by but i'm really excited about this because i look at just all these characters i look at just the possibility for the show and what they can do and again if you if they set it to where and i don't want this to be a, a show where it's like you know arrow where they're going from Flashbacks in the current day and flashback current day. No, no. I I want this to be again. Start off with the roots of the Watchmen if you want. Make it a true origin thing if you want to do an origin, and then over like you know if you get to the season five or whatever you know future seasons, then you just move or have like every season kind of be a decade, take place in a certain decade, you right. know, and have them go through. That'd be pretty cool because you know. Uh, was I believe the comedian was he he was in Vietnam and stuff like that. So you know, hey, I would love to see that team dynamic go through the years because the thing is, is a lot of times in television we see teams go through 
years in terms of just like months and, and weeks and, and it seems like you know okay when from episode one to episode six it feels like a week or so has gone by and it's not been like a year or so yeah. but if you want to do like hey season one's gonna be set in the 19 just just use an era just like 1960s we're gonna do vietnam and and how that kind of challenged everything and stuff like that and then season two is in 1970s if you want to do that like gradually go up and up and up and then some, if you want to do flashbacks, kind of piece them in little by little. If, they, if they're important, they tie into certain things. Like if something in the past affects something in the future, then you know, have that, of course. But if not, don't just give us a flashback just to give us a flashback. As long as the flashbacks make sense. That's, that's yeah. all I ask. And, and I think that your point's a good one in that this is the time you do an origin, okay? You don't have to give us origins to, to characters like Spider-Man and Batman that we've seen the origins of a thousand times, but the general public, not familiar with the Watchmen. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of the general public didn't even see the first Watchmen movie either, and I damn sure know that they didn't read the comics. So you want to give people an origin on the Watchmen, I think that's great. But, you know, HBO isn't, also isn't really known for ever, any, you know, effects-heavy stuff, so it'll be very interesting to see how they would incorporate Dr. Manhattan and how they would do that and how they would go. But I don't think you have to have a whole lot of effects in the show. I think you could do it well, but as far as Dr. Manhattan, you really don't have a whole lot of a choice. The only effect you had to put in the show, really, is Dr. Manhattan's big, big blue dick, basically. That's all you gotta do. Well, if George R. R. Martin's writing any episode, <laughs> <laughs> well, no. I mean, if you've seen the movie, you know, it, it, he's it's he's basically naked the whole fucking time. So you see big giant dick on the screen. That's what you, I, that's what I saw for two hours. It's just oh, there's Silk Spectre. Oh, there's Warshack. Oh, big blue dick. <laughs> hey, you try you try finding clothes that match when you're a glowing blue dude. That's, I mean, that can't be easy. I mean. Plus, plus, bitch stole my look with the Blue Man group anyway, so... I mean, you couldn't have asked... I mean, you're in the DC Universe. You couldn't have asked Superman to borrow the underwear that goes over his suit. You couldn't have done that. I think based on Rebirth, they're not going to get along very well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very much so. Uh, But no, I think that when I look at this man, there's a lot of potential there. And as I said, let the blue penis jokes commence. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, we're not too far away from that happening at this juncture. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of Nerd News. We come next. We diving into the world of Boom Studios' Destroyer as we're going to be talking to writer Victor Laval about his take on the Frankenstein genre. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. One of the most unique stories out there, I think, right now is Destroyer from Boom Studios. We're just so excited to have the writer for that on this week. It's Victor Laval. Victor, how you doing? I'm very good. Good to be on the show. Now, Victor, there have been a lot of Frankenstein stories told over the years, and I love how refreshingly unique the Destroyer really is. So did you go into this feeling like you had to honor any kind of source material or anything, or did you really feel like you had a clean slate here? Well, actually, you know, uh, one of the things that was really freeing was uh, there's a lot of Frankenstein stuff, but I don't actually think most of it is ever really based on the Frankenstein novel. Uh, It's often, like, based on later iterations of the Frankenstein story. So, weirdly, by sticking closer in some basic ways to the novel, I actually got to do brand new stuff. And, Victor, the way that you've written Dr. Baker in this series is one of the main things I just love about Destroyer, simply because 
I myself as a reader feel conflicted about her and her motives because on one hand I side with her because she's a grieving mother and on the other one there's a sense of gray surrounding her and her motives. So as a writer, how do you find that type of balance with a character like her without tipping the scales one way or the other? Well, it's definitely um, a delicate balance, right? Because uh, I I think maybe sometimes uh, uh, something that can bother me about any kind of popular entertainment uh, is the idea that good guys always act good and bad guys always act bad. And instead, I really like the stuff that says that sometimes good guys make their choices based on uh, really, you know, difficult uh, emotions. And then in this case, uh, you're certainly set up to feel a great deal of sympathy for uh, Dr. Baker because her son was murdered, but also, I think, to like her because she's like a scientific genius. She's like a Tony Stark uh, kind of level intelligence and uh for i think a lot of comic book readers that's like an automatic like gold star for a character but then i wanted to complicate that by you know sort of saying like but because of her grief maybe sometimes uh she is in danger of tipping into doing some really horrific things to people uh or make some really horrific choices because despite her intelligence and her general goodness uh, that doesn't mean she always makes the best choices. Absolutely. And in the first couple of issues, we're seeing the original monster take up certain causes and really displaying a sense of heart and maybe even soul. So are we seeing genuine altruism here, or is there more to his motives that we're going to learn in future issues? Well, you know, this was like one of the things that I liked about um, going back to the original book, uh, because, like, in the original book, it's certainly that uh, the monster is begging Victor Frankenstein for a companion, and for Victor Frankenstein to, like, love him and treat him like a son. But when Victor Frankenstein rejects him, the monster then goes and kills his uh, Victor Frankenstein's seven-year-old brother, kills his sister, kills his fiance, kills his father. I mean, he is a a mass murderer is essentially what he becomes. And I feel like that part is often like lost um, in the sort of post Boris Karloff world where Frankenstein was basically written as, you know, I mean, played as like a giant toddler. But I've got two kids, so I know one of the most frightening things in the world would be if you had the rages of a toddler mixed with the strength of like a superhuman. You could destroy whole cities by combining those things. So for me, I really wanted to lean into kind of troubling people's ideas of what the monster is supposed to be, because on some level, a monster is a force of nature. And in that true way, uh, you know, nature doesn't actually care about us. And so nature just runs right over us again and again. So I think one of the things that's going to be interesting is to see how people keep holding out hope for the monster to essentially become good and, uh, I'm trying to play with this idea of like, well, the monster is a force of nature. And do we ask nature to be good? I love, I love that concept. I really, really do. And of course, you know, in issue two, there's a lot of great concepts in there as well. And of course, at the end, there's a big reveal, which I know James and I both love. So without spoiling anything, what kind of an impact will that reveal at the end have on not only the end of the book, but also the world itself as the series moves forward. So I felt like I needed to let the reader know that there's going to be another force in the story. And so that's why in the reveal, um, the energy of that reveal is supposed to be sort of cool, but also 
kind of fun, for lack of a better term, like surprising in its hopefulness or optimism or something like that. And that that's like the last um, sort of leg of the uh, triangle. It's those different sort of emotional registers that are going to be at play. There's uh, grief, there's rage or destruction, but there is also actually hope uh, and uh, the potential for optimism in the comic and wanting to make sure that, well, you know, that we just didn't uh, drift entirely into the universe of the Grimm. Absolutely. We're talking to Victor Laval, who is the writer of Destroyer from Boom Studios, which, of course, issues one and two are available right now. Now, Victor, we've seen a lot of different reactions to the original monster once people actually encounter him in the books. How do you think you would react as a professor, as a writer? How would you react if you encountered a similar monster on the streets of New York? I can now with one like hell. <laughs> There's literally nothing else I would do. <laughs> no curiosity, no nothing. Uh, I have seen that horror movie, and uh, I'm the black dude who gets killed first, so I'm running. <laughs> I think that's a perfectly normal reaction. <laughs> yes, I think so. Too. In fact, I mean, I feel like uh, the modern day horror movie, uh, like. At this point, I mean, I love horror movies, but I feel like there's still sometimes like there's a lot of them are still stuck in, say, like the like a, a 70s or 80s model where you just sit there and be like, uh, all right, nobody's going to do anything sensible like ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm just supposed to roll with it. Oh, yeah. It's like in, a, in Friday the 13th, where, uh, Jason takes Manhattan, where you have that guy, he's a, like a boxer, and he's like boxing Jason on top of a roof, and he's all tired out, and Jason just uppercuts his head right off, and you're kind of like, dude, you should have just ran. Like, now's not the time to show how good of a boxer you are, especially something like Jason. Especially against Jason. But at least, I would say, like, at least by the time of Jason takes Manhattan, they just acknowledge, like, we're just going for camp. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, we're done with that. But like the, I feel like the the one twist that I enjoyed, like in more recent years, was in that uh, first Insidious. They got all the crazy things happening, and they just moved. And I thought, like, I'm so happy to see this. And then that second move where they say it's not the house that that's haunted, it's your son. And I was just like, all right, whatever else, whatever other dumb stuff shows up in this movie, I'm in because at least they acknowledge mm-hmm. that basic need. Oh yeah, common sense need for uh, the modern day. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the whole, like, you're in a haunted house. Why don't you just run out of the house? You know, but no, we're going to stay and fight what's inside. It's like right. the door's unlocked. You can go. There are windows. You can jump through them. You might get cut up, but there are windows. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I'll I tell you, the, the thing that for me, like, um, I just, I, in both horror and science fiction, at this stage, like 2017, I really don't understand why anybody splits up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, it just, it just, I just, you just sit there, it's like, oh, I see. It's time to kill off the secondary cast. Yeah. Like that's all it needs because it never makes sense. Let's both go in these two different directions. I'm thinking like Alien uh, Prometheus. Let's go in these two different directions down these dark tunnels. Take off our helmets and just see <laughs> what's out here. Right. You're just gonna. You're just. Like, you're literally just like throwing a cup of piss in my face. Like at this point, because <laughs> I don't understand how else I'm supposed to take this. Right. Oh, <laughs> you know, talking about this whole experimenting and all this stuff that's in the book. In Destroyer, Doctor Baker has 
a lab underneath their home. So, Victor, if you had your own lab underneath where you live, what kind of weird experiments would you be performing inside of it? Huh, that's a good question. Um, well, the first thing I'd be doing since it's a New York City, since it would be a New York City underground lab, it would be how to get rid of all the rats and oh, yeah. yes. that inevitably snuck in to my lab. Like, in fact, I feel like I could. I, the only thing I would be doing is just setting rat traps. I wouldn't even have time to even like uh, <laughs> um, do anything cool. Because I just like, there's more rats in this place. There's more. There's more. Although maybe then, oh, this is the best experiment then. I would create uh, some way to control the rats of New York. Ooh. Uh, to do my bidding. You know, and there's, I think, 8 million of them under the streets of New York City, uh, apparently, if not more. Wow. So you'd be taking more of like a Willard approach to this whole thing. Exactly. I'm always on the side of like the weird villain. Oh like, yeah. I, I never choose the hero or the the good guy. Uh, Willard, Ben, that's the way I'm going. And then anybody who looks at me sideways on the street is getting eaten by rats. <laughs> like that's it. That is amazing. I just my powers for vengeance. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd get a petty human being. That's all I. That for all my brilliance, I would still be the same petty human being. You, you know, Victor, as a fa- as somebody who was born and raised in New York, uh, you made me never want to go home again. <laughs> Come on back. We're all so sweet and cuddly. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna be on the lookout for Rat Uber now too. I'm not taking that thing. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Because the other thing is, like, they won't mind uh, if you don't pay them. Right. <laughs> That's true. Like, and they're right the size of taxi cabs, so you're good. Right. There's trash over there. Just go eat that. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Victor, actually, earlier on in the show, we were talking about The Mummy a little bit. You know that Universal has their own Dark Universe movies coming out, which, of course, started with The Mummy. So if you were to kind of take Destroyer yeah. beyond the realm of Frankenstein, is there another monster story you'd really eventually love to tell? Yeah, absolutely. Immediate answer is the Wolfman. I feel like the Wolfman has almost never been done well. I mean, I, that Benicio del Toro movie. Oh, I don't know if any if you guys even saw that. Oh, one. I saw it. It was bad. Like, yeah, I spared. The only except for that one scene, uh, the scene in the asylum when they're like dunking him. Yeah, and they're trying to transform. Yep, was amazing. And it was literally like, and then it was surrounded by another hour and a half of like, I just was like, what? The, I don't even understand what's going on here. And then the next thing you know, he's fighting his father, Anthony Hopkins, in like the library. And Anthony Hopkins is a big giant wolf too. So it's like wolf on wolf fight. You're like, what is, what is this that I'm watching? And I, it was interesting, even like an, as an aesthetic choice, because they, they were werewolves, but they went for the old 50s look like the it was basically like they were cuddly werewolves because right? they didn't look what? like wolves. They had, and it was kind of hard. Like, and I can't do like a boss battle between like Ewoks. They, you know, what they looked like they looked That's, like um, they look. You know, what they looked like if I don't know if you ever played the game Altered Beast. They looked like that basically. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a good comparison. Thank you. So, but I mean, to me, I feel like uh, there's a. Uh, uh, um, I mean, certainly like an old, uh, age-old favorite, maybe my favorite uh, werewolf movie, American Werewolf in London, mm-hmm. uh, yes. was a great one from back in the day. Uh, Wolfson was uh, another one from around that time that maybe wasn't as great a movie, but had some great effects. You also had The Howling. And The Howling. The Howling, the howling was actually, I thought, one of the creepiest ones. 
uh, in the scenes with uh, Eddie, uh, I forget his last name now, but when he's transforming at the different phases. I re- so anyway, I really love werewolves. Uh, and I would absolutely uh, do a werewolf story uh, next. And, you know, speaking of Destroyer, the art in it is really, really great. And outside of your writing, what really grabs us is that illustrations that are done by Dietrich Smith, and who we've had on the show before, also Joanne Luev Fuente's colors. So for you, oh, nice. what is it about their art styles that makes them perfect for the series? Well, you know, what What is, I feel so lucky about is that uh, both... Um, both Dietrich and Joanna, like, uh, so, uh, Dietrich, like visuals, uh, is somehow, uh, it seems strange to almost say that like, uh, he manages to make Frankenstein's monster and this world of like, uh, mad scientists and androids seem realistic while still being in the comic realm. Like, uh, I feel like everything feels tangible and like heavy and I could imagine what it feels like to be in the lab uh, I imagine what it feels like if I was, if I was standing in the uh, shadow of that monster. And then uh, Joanna's colors just make everything like just, it seems like everything is happening just get, just at dusk, you know, and it, and it gives it a nice, almost like horror. I feel like horror movie ish feel uh, almost like old EC comics and stuff like that. Um, and I, I, mean, I have to tell you like, whatever I write, I write out the script and all that stuff. And I have some vision in my head. And really regularly, like page by page, what they send back is always, I mean, it's just a reminder how nice it is to work with like real professionals and people who are great at their job. Because uh, whatever I imagine, they just, they make it so much better again and again and again. And I just feel very lucky to be working with them. Well, guys, we told you this when we reviewed the book, that it's a Frankenstein story unlike ones you've ever seen before, and that's why you have to go get Destroyer issues number one and two are both available right now at your local comic shops and at digital retailers as well. Writer Victor Laval, thank you so much for joining us this week. Hey, James, Nick, really, I appreciate it so much. You know, James, it's really awesome to not only talk about books and comics that are based on horror, but to talk about somebody like Victor who not only loves his genre, but has, and you can tell by his writing and just what we talked about in the interview, just his deep respect, not only for the genre itself, but for the Frankenstein book itself and just that whole mythos and that whole genre, if you will, that and character that is Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, it can, you can just tell by the knowledge that he dropped, too, that he's a fan of everything, whether it be the movies, the books, anything that's come previously. He's got that knowledge about the entire genre, but in, even having that knowledge, it allowed him to create this this such a unique thing here in, in Destroyer, where you're going, okay, yeah, another Frankenstein story, because there's been a million of those, but then once you start reading it, you're like, I feel like I'm reading something absolutely 100% completely new and fresh. And I think that your point that you brought up with Dr. Baker and you're not sure really which side to take there was, was a good example of what we're getting something that's new. So, I mean, it's just so interesting, you know? Well, it's that concept, especially with Dr. Baker, which I love is the fact of, yeah, she's a grieving mother and her son was murdered. But at the same time, it's like what she's doing in terms of what she's doing in her lab it comes from a grieving place. In a sense, it comes from a good place. But in the end, it's also a very big negative. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's very consequential in the whole reanimating of things and stuff like that. So I think that 
overall, it's it leaves you conflicted because you're like, you know, I understand that you're grieving and you want your son back, but it's it's kind of a sense of, and I know I don't have kids, so it's easy, I would say, for me to say this, but it's kind of like, you know, they're gone. You know, it's and it's part of things where I think what I love about this too is it hits you. I know you're a parent, dude, so I know it, it hits you on a personal level too. So I think that that's what Victor's main part of this and what and destroyer, which is just kind of connecting that that sense of grief. Yeah, absolutely, and it, and it really does hit you on a different level when you, when you're a parent and you kind of you see Doctor Baker through different eyes. I guess is is one way to and and it makes you and it gives you the whole you know what would you do in that situation right sort of thing. And like like he said, she's like a Tony stark so she has the ability to do certain things that you know normal people necessarily wouldn't be able to do and she decided to take it to a certain level so then you balance that out with you know well should you shouldn't you and and like you said are you know once they're gone or should they just be gone kind of thing there's so many factors at play here and not to mention let's also look at the fact that she's being chased by the government and by the way there's another giant freaking monster out there right may may, may or may not be dangerous and might just explode at any possible time Right, exactly. Of course, my thing is too is maybe who knows down the line in later issues, maybe there's a connection between Baker and the monster itself, you know, and and so it'd be very interesting, you know. But overall, man, this this Destroyer series is just awesome. The artwork by Dietrich and and the entire crew is just amazing, and I I just loved it, man. It's it's clean and it gives you that sense of, of horror with as Victor said, a little bit of fun as well, which I like. I mean, there's an opening scene in issue two where, you know, there's Border Patrol agents and they're kind of like, okay, you know, relax or whatever, you know, stuff like that. And next thing you know, he's putting a guy's head right through a, a car, basically. Yep, you know? yep exactly. <laughs> so it is. It's like kind of like that, like, horror, but at the same time, it's a little bit of fun as well, which I like. It's not too heavy, but it's not too light. It, it's knowing the balance. Between oh, exactly. the two that that made it work really, really well, and that's that's really, really tough to do, especially when you're when you're dealing with horror. But Victor and Dietrich absolutely do that. And how about the fact that the first two issues both had spotlight art in the beginning for Dietrich, which I absolutely loved. I know, man. I love this series. And hey, if you're somebody who hasn't started the series yet, or you're just hearing about it, go to your local shops, go online, go get it because. It's an amazing thing. It's one of those stories where I hope that after this series is done, that they keep this team together and have them do more monsters. Like I would love to see Victor work on Wolfman, and then kind of maybe maybe we have the <laughs> the Laval Monster Universe. That would be pretty awesome. I think. Darn good start if that's what we're getting. <laughs> exactly, man. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Victor Laval for coming on and talking about Destroyer from Boom Studios. But hey, front more of us. On social media throughout the week, well, you can always catch us on Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy. We're also on Twitter at Down and Nerdy 757. You can catch me on Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch at Merc with One Arm. I'm just on the Twitter machine at James A. Switham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. All this information can be found at DownandNerdyPodcast.com. That's our website. Matter of fact, if you want to get the first two issues of Destroyer, from Boom, right from our Amazon store. Go to the This Week section, scroll down. They'll be right there waiting for you, along with all the other stuff we've talked about on this week's show, all found at downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, pay safe comic reading. Always bag and board your comics.